The nation that God loved spent much, spent much of its history reverberating in the aftershocks of bad decisions. That's the nation of Israel. In the book of Isaiah, it says these words. This is 33, Isaiah 33, 2 through 6. It says, O Lord, be gracious to us. We have waited for you. Be thou their strength every morning, our salvation also in the time of distress. At the sound of the tumult, peoples flee. At the lifting up of thyself, nations dispense. And your spoil is gathered as the caterpillar gathers. As locusts rushing about, men rush about on it. The Lord is exalted. He dwells on high. He has filled Zion with justice and righteousness. He shall be the stability of your times. A wealth of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. It says of the Messiah... He will be the stability of your times. Do you want to have a stable life? Everybody would answer that question, yes. What's truly stable? God. What kingdom can we serve that's an unshakable kingdom? The book of Hebrews says, everything that can be shaken will be shaken. But we serve a kingdom and a king that cannot be shaken. Because nothing ever shakes him up. Praise God. And we can live that kind of life if we anchor ourselves in the one who is unshakable. David, a little later, as we do a little intro, he writes, uh, this is actually uh, the same as Psalm 18. Go to uh, 2 Samuel 22. And David is praising God just a couple chapters ahead. And here's what he says. He said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. 2 Samuel 22, 3. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, and my refuge, my Savior, thou dost save me from violence. Now, David was a tough man, but I want you to see how he describes God. He says, the Lord is my rock. He's my stability. He's my hiding place. That's the idea of a fortress. He's my deliverer, my salvation. He's my stability, verse 3, my rock. He's my refuge, my shield, my protection, my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge. He is everything to me. And that's what you and I have to learn. That Jesus Christ becomes everything to us. Even though I am absent in body, Paul writes to the Colossian church, I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ as ye therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. As I've been watching the things uh, about the Middle East and every president in my lifetime has tried to bring peace to the Middle East, they've been saying that there are things that will destabilize a region. So when our government or when we're looking at military options, we wonder about doing something that may bring destabilization to a region. And that is how kind of we have to make decisions about our lives. We want to make decisions about our lives, our family, our relationships, what we do with our finances that will bring stability, not destabilize. And what destabilized David's kingdom is simply captured in one word. It's sin. Sin destabilizes your life. Sin will 
cause aftershocks in your life. That's why the Bible encourages you and me to let the fear of the Lord determine our decisions. But we're human, right? And even after becoming a Christian, we fall short of the glory of God. We make our share of mistakes. David went through that, and when he went through that, I want you to turn to Psalm 13. He would, he would cry out to God, Psalm 13, a little bit to your right. And here's a psalm. We don't know exactly when David wrote this psalm, but this captures David's heart in a time of difficulty. It will lead us nicely into the chapter. This is what David did when things seemed unstable in his life. Psalm 13, verse 1. He said, How long, O Lord, will thou forget me forever? How long will thou hide thy face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul? Psalm 13, 2. Having sorrow in my heart all the day. How long will my enemy be exalted over me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me, says the NIV. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, verse 3, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say I have overcome him. Lest my adversaries rejoice when I am, notice, shaken. But I have trusted in thy loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in thy salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Turn back to 2 Samuel. I don't think it's a bad thing. I think actually it's a, a refreshing thing to be real even before the Lord when you're going through something difficult. When life is throwing you some curveballs, you can say, because David said it, Lord, where are you? <laughs> Have you forgotten about me? You ever prayed a prayer like that? Lord, are you hearing what I'm praying? Well, as David went through his stuff in life, that's how he felt. And in 2 Samuel chapter 20, as we pick up the account in verse 1, we are reminded of this man named Sheba. He is described as a worthless fellow, 2 Samuel 20 verse 1, literally a man of Belial. He happened to be there whose name was Sheba. He was the son of Bichri, a Benjamite. That made him probably side with the house of Saul, 2 Samuel 20 verse 1. And he blew the trumpet, he blew the shofar, and he said, we have no portion in David, nor do we have inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. And so all the men of Israel, verse 2, withdrew from following David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah remained steadfast to their king from the Jordan, even to Jerusalem. One of the things that brings instability to our lives is when people bail on us. When you're in a high position like a king, as David was, he was hoping that he could unite the nation. His prayer was that he could bring the people together. And Warren Wiersbe put it well when he said, sometimes it's just the speech of one person that can lead a bunch of people away from you. Probably all experienced it before. You think things are going good, relationships are going well, and then one person says something about you at work or in your group of friends, and all of a sudden a bunch of people have bailed from you and you don't even know why. People can be won over by even a decent speech. And here's why. Because a lot of people don't even know what they believe and why they go to follow someone that they follow. A lot of people just follow the latest fad because they are not anchored to the rock. 
And so they blow with the wind. Is that you? Is the, the latest teaching, the latest fad, you blow over here and then you blow over there. And what it brings is instability. And David was looking at his kingdom and saying, no, this, please let this not happen again. Once again, he was leading a nation that was divided. You know, sometimes when we pray for our leaders, I think we need to be able to put ourselves in their moccasins for a second and think about whatever, wherever you may be politically, think about how many shots a person at the top takes a day. Think about how many negative articles are written about people, how much press you have to ignore if you're in that kind of situation. It's not an easy position to be in. And that's what David, that's where he was. He was taking pot shots. And this, this man, this, he's, the Bible calls him a worthless man, stirred the people again. Right when David finally was thinking, hey, I'm going to be back on my throne. I'm going home. Finally, Absalom's rebellion and uprising has been dealt with. David's getting ready to, to go back home, to go to his throne, to go back to the place that he loved. He probably was wondering if I, I'm ever going to be back there. And just when you think trouble is over, trouble comes again. Ever been there before? You go on vacation. Can I get a witness? <laughs> and you have all these issues on vacation, and then you say, I can't wait till I get back home. I need a vacation from my Vacation. Vacations always sound good until you're on vacation. Then you're like, I want to go home. Well, this man Sheba said, we have no inheritance. Strong idea there. Because the people of God were God's inheritance and the land was an inheritance that God had given to the people. And this man named Sheba says, we got, we got nothing in David. We're not going to find anything for us in David. Can you imagine if you're David standing there and the people say, we have, we have nothing from this guy. There's nothing here for us. Imagine, imagine how many times in the life of Jesus people walked away from him. Imagine how many times God in heaven hears somebody say, I'm not going to follow anymore because there's nothing for me here. Well, that happens. All the time. And so the son of Jesse uh, that Sheba called David was a pejorative way. It was a disparaging way to refer to David. It's how Saul referred to David when he was mad at David. Oh, that son of Jesse. And this is what David had to deal with. And so I want to encourage you as a Christian that no matter how the winds blow in the culture and even the church culture, stay true to your king. He will never leave you or forsake you. People will. He won't. He's the one that can bring stability to your life. Now, David, verse 3, 2 Samuel 20, came to his house at Jerusalem, and he was probably wondering if he would ever return to that great city. And the king took the ten women, the concubines, verse 3, whom he had left to keep the house, and he placed them under guard and provided them with sustenance, but he did not go into them. I, I do want to tell you that if you have smaller ones here, there is some mature content here just as a heads up. He was not with them. He was not intimate with them. So they were shut up until the day of their death living as widows. 
Now, even though David was, Absalom's rebellion was squashed and Absalom was now dead and David had gone home, David had to deal with the fallout back home. And one of the pieces, one of the things he had to deal with was the fact that Absalom, in order to show his strength and to make a uh, move towards the throne, took David's concubines. And there's no other way to say it, he raped them. And whatever the position may be, whatever your thoughts are on David's concubines, and I'm going to argue that David's harem was wrong. He shouldn't have done that. Deuteronomy 17, 17 says, The king shall not multiply wives to himself. That's what David did. He was outside of God's will. But these women, nonetheless, were in David's household. And when he left, when Absalom was coming to take over and he was trying to kill his father and take the throne, David had left the concubines there. And Absalom ravage them and if you imagine for a moment being one of those women just think how they felt David had left them behind to take care of things and Absalom took advantage of them he violated them and now David had to go back and face them and by the way the reason that that happened was given in a prophecy earlier in chapter 12 that what David had done secretly with Bathsheba would be done openly by his own sons. Imagine walking back into your house and having to look in the eyes of those ladies and realizing that that's a consequence of your actions. So David did what he could. Notice in verse 3, he placed them under guard. I think that means he tried to protect them. He provided for them. And they needed a lot of care. They needed maybe just a shoulder to cry on. And David was the man that they looked to. So he probably had to spend a lot of time just trying to hear them out and try to do, do some repair. And I will tell you this, that anybody, and I'm sure this room has people in it, who's ever been through abuse, whether it's this type of abuse or even physical abuse, it's going to take some time to recover. And David, if you could see David in this moment as a type of Jesus Christ can be there for you even if you've been abused, even if you've been wronged by another individual. And the statistics are pretty scary on how often this happens and how little it's actually talked about. But David went home and he put the ladies under guard. He knew that they needed to feel safe and he provided what they need. He provided them with sustenance but he was not with them again. And there are some scholars that believe the reason that David wasn't with them again is found in Leviticus 18, 5 through 15, that there was some sort of defilement that went on and David did not want to break the Levitical law. That's certainly a possibility. His son had been with these women, so that's a possibility. But here's another thought, and this came from another commentary I read this week, that maybe David, upon coming home, decided that he was no longer going to have concubines in his life. Maybe he was thinking twice about the whole idea of a king having a harem and him having multiple women in his life. Maybe he started to think about the fact that God said from the beginning, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife singular. And the two shall become what? One flesh. Maybe David... After all he had dealt with, and sometimes, look, here's the truth of life. we got to learn most of our lessons the hard way. 
right? It would be nice if some of us could say, you know what, I, that last lesson I learned was so easy. I learned the easy way this time. I had a friend tell me he made this mistake, and I said, I'm never going to make that mistake, right? But the truth is that we have to learn most of our probably most substantive, deepest lessons in our lives are learned the hard way. And here's the sad reality. These women, verse 3, they were shut up until the day of their death, living as widows. They, the text would indicate, spent the rest of their lives with no man in their lives. They had to live out their days as widows. And that was because of David. That was because David had sinned with Bathsheba, but that was also because David did things outside of God's will. And even though David was forgiven, please hear what I'm about to say very well. Even though you can be forgiven by God, it doesn't mean the aftershock of consequences stops. And even in the light of forgiven sin, and I'll take it a step further, even when you try to make things right after you've sinned, it doesn't mean that everything's just going to be great. Maybe you formulated a plan that, you know, you hear about, okay, bringing sin into the light or you want to ask for forgiveness. Some years ago, I had a friend tell me that he was confronted with such issues and so he decided that he would go to his spouse and ask for forgiveness for some past, I'll put it, indiscretions. And he had in his mind how it was going to go. I'm going to go and I'm going to confess and my spouse is going to be so wonderfully thrilled that I confess this stuff and hold me and say, it's okay, you're forgiven. Oh, it's so brave of you. And that's what he thought until he confessed it. And it didn't go the way he had it in his mind. It was hard for months after that. Because we think, oh, see, sometimes the motivation for us to do something like that is about us. It's not about the other person. I'm gonna, i got to get this off my chest so that we, I, can, I can be done with this. And so I need you to hear me. <laughs> right? Sometimes even in our apologies, we, we don't have the right motive. And so David had to deal with the reality. And as one author put it, David was not the kind of king who could wipe away their tears. But Jesus is that kind of king. And so even when it looks like, you know, I could go to counselors for the next 10 years and they can't wipe away my tears, but there is a king who can wipe away every tear from your eyes. Amen. He's the stable king. And one day he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. The wrongs that we have done to others and the wrongs done to us were nailed to the cross. That's the kind of king we serve. And the king said to Amasa, verse 4, Call out the men of Judah for me within three days and be present here yourself. Now there was something else that David had to deal with. He had to deal with Sheba who was leading this rebellion. So he had to comfort the ladies. You know, he got home from what he had to deal with. And it wasn't just, I'm going to sit on the throne. I think I'll watch a Dodger game or something. No. He had to go immediately to work. And he called Amasa. And Amasa went out to call the men of Judah. He was the man who had replaced Joab as being the commander of the army, even though Amasa was the commander for the rebellion. But David had forgiven him. 
But he delayed, verse 5, longer than the set time which he had appointed him. All of a sudden, Amasa wasn't coming back with the troops. It was just a little too much time for Amasa to amass the troops. And so David started getting a little bit worried. This guy had been part of a rebellion before, so maybe David was thinking, did this guy just, is he collecting an army for himself again? What's going on? So David said to Abishai, that's Joab's brother, David's nephew, now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he find for himself fortified cities and escape from our sight. David said, we need to deal with this guy and we need to deal with him now. Titus 1.11 talks about false teachers that must be silenced because they are upsetting or ruining. They are shaking up whole families, teaching things that they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. Titus 1.11. Some people need to be stopped. Some false teachers absolutely need to be silenced because of the damage that they're doing to other people. On Living Truth Radio, or it's now called Walk in Truth this morning, you may have heard it, I was dealing with Jehovah's Witnesses. And sometimes when you deal with a cultic movement, people get mad at you. But I'm willing to risk someone mad at me if they can meet the true Christ. If they can find true hope and not a false hope. And David knew that he had to deal with Sheba because Sheba was trying to draw people away from the kingdom and away from their true king. And he was dangerous. Jesus talked about people who would try to stumble believers, even new believers. He said it would be better for those people if a heavy millstone be wrapped around their neck, and they'd be cast into the depth of the sea. Why would Jesus say that if all roads lead to God? Why would Jesus say that if you can just pick whatever, quote-unquote, Jesus you want? It really doesn't matter. No, these things are crucial. Jesus said, if, if one of these little ones that believes me is, is stumbled, here's what should happen to the stumbler. And David says, we got to deal with this guy. So Joab's men went out after him along with the Cherethites, the Pelethites, and all the mighty men. And they went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. Now I want you to notice some of the men are called Joab's men. He had led a third, uh, he commanded a third of the men against Absalom's rebellion. And Joab is still part of the army, but he's been demoted. Why had Absalom been demoted? Or why had Joab been demoted? Because he had killed Absalom. And remember, David was upset, and David said, I want Absalom spared. And Joab killed him, and David was mad. And Joab gave David the business for being mad. He said, you care more about your son who was trying to kill you than you do care about those of us who are trying to protect you. And so Joab's there, and Amasa is supposed to be leading the army, but Joab's men are there. By the way, Amasa means burden bearer. And when they were at the large stone or great stone, it was probably a historic landmark that people knew about, which was in Gibeon, about five to six miles northwest of Jerusalem. Amasa came to meet them. Now, apparently he had gathered an army, but he was a little tardy. Now, Joab was dressed in his military attire, Joab, the former commander. And over it was a belt with a sword, probably a small dagger. And its sheath fastened at his waist, and he went forward, and it fell out. 
Now all of a sudden Amasa shows up with a group of people he's gathered. He's probably heading back to Jerusalem to get his orders from the king. Probably something like this. Hey king, I finally got the army together. Maybe he was met with some resistance because of what he had done formally with Absalom. And so they meet at this large stone and Joab, who's still there and dressed in military attire, he's the former commander. So no love lost between these two guys, right? Here's your replacement standing there. Here's a man who led a rebellion against David, a man you've always been faithful toward, even though you didn't always do things the way David would like. And you see him at this landmark, this large stone. You go walking up, and all of a sudden, if we put it in modern vernacular, your gun falls out of your holster. Now, if you're a Masa, you might be thinking, hmm, that's interesting. <laughs> well, as he walks up, his sword falls out. And Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? This is a really a Hebrew greeting. It's shalom. We might say it in modern vernacular. Hey, bro, how you doing? Peace, brother. And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. Now, I don't recommend that any of you guys do this. Uh, some of the people who are new to Christianity are just trying to get over the fact that men hug each other. So we understand. Do not grab them by the beard. That's, that's really, I think this is an ancient Jewish thing that we don't recommend, right? But anyway, but Amasa was not on guard against the sword, which was in Joab's hand. Maybe he just thought, oh, he's just picking it up. And maybe this whole thing was a, a way for Joab to get the, Advantage. And so he, Joab, struck him in the belly with it. And this may ruin your donut you want to have afterwards. And poured out his inward parts on the ground. And did not strike him again, and he died. And then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. Well, that's a nice greeting. Hey, brother, how you doing? Ooh! And it was over. And he's there now bleeding in the middle of the highway and dead. And some of you are thinking, what is Joab's problem <laughs> exactly? <laughs> that, that's what David always wondered about this guy. It seemed like Joab had David's back, but did things the way David didn't want them done. It seems for Joab, the answer was always the sword and you may have a few friends in your life like this. you got to calm them down every night. <laughs> hey, hey, hey! When I first came to the church, uh, we were playing in a uh, Christian softball league. How many of you have ever played in a Christian softball league? Christian softball leagues are not always so Christian. <laughs> and oftentimes, in the midst of competition, because we know how competition brings out the best in everybody, Right? We would have some of our teams who would get a little upset at the umpire. If you've ever tried to be an umpire, you can't please the people. Half of the people are always mad at you. Right? And so some of our players would be jumping up and down. I can't, that's a terrible call. You, gotta be you need some glasses. Uh, and I'd be going, uh, guys, this is a Sunday Christian league. Let's calm it down a little bit. Right? Sometimes we just lose who we are. So Joab ends up killing 
Amasa, and maybe because he felt like Amasa was a traitor. Later in 1 Kings 2, David tells Solomon, he says of Joab that he shed the blood of war in peace. He put the blood of war on his belt and about his waist and on the sandals on his feet. So David says to Solomon, act according to your wisdom and do not let his gray hair go down to Sheol in peace. 1 Kings 2, 5 and 6. Ultimately, he was held responsible for what he did. Now there stood by him one of Joab's young men, verse 11, and said, whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. Let's get moving, in other words. But Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the middle of the highway. And when the man saw that all the people stood still, he removed Amasa from the highway into the field and threw a garment over him. When he saw that everyone who came by him stood still. You can imagine, you're one of the soldiers there. You see this meeting taking place. It looks like they're going to have a cup of coffee and all of a sudden someone is laying there dead. And the people were stunned. And each person as they were walking by couldn't help but look at his dead body there in the middle of the street. And so one of the men pulled the body off the highway, put a cover over it and basically said, if you're on David's side, you need to follow Joab right now. That was a lot of pressure to put on the people. And as soon as he was removed from the highway, all the men passed on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. Now he, this is Sheba, went through all the tribes of Israel to Abel, even to Beth Makkah. Many of you remember from a previous sermon that Beth Makkah is a Boston way of saying the house of Makar. I thought that would go over better, but apparently <laughs> it did. Makar. My car in Boston, never mind. Anyway, <laughs> see, people are walking out just because my jokes are horrible. <laughs> I know you're not doing that, JT. I love you. <laughs> I'm used to it. It's okay. And so, all the Barites, verse 14, probably another way to say the Bikrites, a clan or the father of Sheba, they were gathered together and also went after him. So he got some sort of following, did this Sheba, this rogue leader. But it seems like he didn't have a whole lot of success. It was just people from his clan. And he went about 100 miles to the north, 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. This is the top of the nation of Israel, probably near the base of Mount Hermon. And he set up shop in this place called Beth Makkah. And he tried to entrench himself there. And so here comes the pursuit. And they came and they besieged him at Abel, Beth Makkah, and they cast up a mound against the city. This would be a siege mound. This is how ancient uh, warfare took place. They would start using the earth and stuff like that. And they would, if you had a wall, they would start just building this ramp until they could get to you. If you ever get a chance to go to Israel, you, you can go to the top of a place called Masada. And it's this ancient fortress that was built by King Herod and it's you got to go up on a cable car basically to get up there and the Roman army built a siege ramp all the way up this steep hill to finally get to the people that were up there and it would take them weeks months even years to do it but in ancient warfare if you had a wall this is what they do they just start the earth and they just start building up a ramp until they finally could get to you and so they're they're there uh 
They cast up the mound, verse 15, middle. They stood at its rampart. All the people who were with Joab were wreaking destruction in order to topple the wall. They were, they were beating on the wall. Now, if you're one of the people in the city and Sheba has just come by lately and you're like, all right, what's all the hubbub about? Well, uh, there's some people here mad at Sheba. Now, Here's the way sometimes things work. Somebody like Sheba gives a great speech and says, follow me, forget about David, follow me. Prince posters and that kind of thing, right? And they will go, yeah, you know what, Sheba, Sheba's the man, Sheba. And then all of a sudden, you're held up in some city and Sheba has an army mad at him. How committed are you now to Sheba? Those are questions you need to ask, right? The commitment level of one's... Uh, Spiritual life and otherwise could be tested in times like this. And so all of a sudden they're beating on the walls. They're trying to breach the walls. They're trying to batter them down. And a wise woman, it's always a woman who in these kinds of situations speaks wisdom. This is like the third time Abigail had to talk David down. There was a woman of Tekoa who tried to help the problem between David and Absalom and Joab set that up and now for the third time in David's life or at least David's kingdom a wise woman intervenes and so here's what happens she calls from the city probably from the top of the wall and she says here here please tell Joab come here that I may speak with you so he approached her and the woman said are you Joab and he answered I am then she said to him listen to the words of your maidservant and he said I'm listening then she spoke. Formerly they used to say, they will surely ask advice at Abel. And thus they ended the dispute. She says, hey, this city had a reputation. In former times, if people had a dispute, they would come here and there were maybe an ancient type of counselor and, and people could work things out in this city. That's the type of city that you're beating on the walls of right now. Could we talk for a moment? And Job said, I'm listening. Okay, tell me. Give me your best argument. She said, well, I am of those 19 who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. I'm a peaceable person. I'm a faithful person. I'm, I'm an Israelite. You are seeking to destroy a city, even a mother in Israel. This is a mother city, if you will. Why would you, and the you is emphatic, swallow up the inheritance of the Lord? Why are you going to destroy one of God's cities? You know, sometimes when we're trying to deal with rogues or problems, we have to hurt things around us. And that's the decision that's before Joab. And Joab was known to kill people who were part of Israel without even thinking twice. And the woman is calling him out. And I want you to see for a second the application. David probably came home and was thinking about how he was living his life. And Joab, at a city wall, had a woman speak some wisdom into his life that goes much deeper than the surface. Because if you look at the verse, the woman says, why are you trying to swallow up, the idea is even kill, the inheritance of the Lord? Now think about it. This is what Joab had done multiple times. He had swallowed up the inheritance of the Lord. In trying to protect David, but in doing things his way instead of God's way, he had hurt people when that's not in all likelihood what God wanted at that moment. And it's certainly not what David wanted. 
And so she says, why, if I can peel it back for a second, why do you do this kind of thing? Why do you continue hurting people who are part of the inheritance? The National Day of Prayer is coming, and the, the theme is unity for this year's National Day of Prayer. I think it's pretty cool that the United States has a day when, as a country, we're focusing on prayer. Now, we know every day should be the National Day of Prayer, right? But the theme is to preserve unity in the bond of peace. We need unity deeply, not just in the nation, but in the church. Would you agree? If the church could come together and be unified around the truths of the faith and try to win cities for the sake of the greater kingdom, if it could be about the kingdom of God, we would be accomplishing much more than we're accomplishing because the church is, in many ways, divided. And the theme this year is unity. Here's Joab at this wall trying to breach the walls of a city of Israel, and it's like, the woman's like, stop. Why are you trying to swallow up your own people. The name Joab means the Lord is our father or the Lord is father. And he was trying to destroy the mother of Israel. How many times has it been said that Christians are famous for having their firing squads in a circle? You'll get that in a couple of seconds. Right? tend to shoot our own. We tend to, to knock down walls that belong to us. And so Joab's at the wall and the woman says, look, why, some of you need to mark this, why would you swallow up the inheritance of the Lord? Now Joab responded and he said, far be it from me that I should swallow up or destroy. <laughs> Maybe he had a moment of realization that I got to stop doing this kind of thing. Far be it from me that I, that I should destroy this city. Such is not the case. But a man from the hill country of Ephraim, Sheba the son of Bichri by name, has lifted up his hand against King David. Only hand him over and I'll leave. The woman over the wall. <laughs> well, what's the real problem here? Joab says, there's only one problem. We'll stop knocking down your walls. We'll, we'll stop the attack. Just hand over this Sheba character, and I'll leave. So the woman said to Joab, hey, just one second, end of verse 21, we'll throw his head over the wall to you. <laughs> this, this is glorious. Isn't this wonderful? This is the Bible. This is how it works, right? You read the books of the Bible, you're like, really? They're really? So they called a quick committee meeting in the middle of the town, something like this. Hey, the wise woman has texted everybody for a quick corporate meeting. Something like this. Boys, we got problems. You all probably noticed that people are trying to beat down our, the walls of our city right now. I found out a little additional information. <laughs> Thank God for wise women. They, they, you know, people are, I don't know, what's that noise in the background? I don't know. I think some. She found out the source of the problem is this guy named Sheba. So here's what we have to do. I wonder if Sheba was within earshot of this meeting. <laughs> what, did they mention my name? We just need to cut his head off 
throw it over the wall, and our problems are over. You've all heard of the idea of cutting off the head of the snake. There it is. And so they had this corporate meeting. <laughs> the jury wasn't out for about five minutes. Yeah, yeah, I'm good with it. <laughs> as long as it's his head, I'm, I'm fine. I, I can live with that. So the woman wisely came to all the people. Short staff meeting. All in favor? Say I. All opposed? Sheba. Nay! No! I. <laughs> this is more than abstaining. Do you read my lips? No! But they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it over the wall to Joab. This is where the ancient saying came from, heads up. <laughs> or, actually, it should be heads down, shouldn't it? I'm sorry, but I thought you needed a little humor at this point. <laughs> and so, <laughs> what you'll find about People like Sheba is when they try to get ahead. <laughs> Usually their rebellions are cut off rather quickly. So I don't know if Joab had a catcher's mitt, but <laughs> over the wall goes Sheba's head. <laughs> You're like, some of you haven't been to church for a while. Like, yeah, I went to this church this morning. You won't believe what. <laughs> guys talking about heads flying over walls. And... Anyway, so Joab made the catch. And that was it. He blew the trumpet, middle of 22. And they dispersed from the city, each to his own tent. And Joab also returned to the king at Jerusalem. Now, I'm sure he had a package for him, but we won't. We won't go into that. And I'm sure the people in the city were like, good call, wise woman. A couple of high fives, and there you go. Rebellions like Sheba's often die this way because people can be fickle. Can you imagine the people around Sheba? Yeah, so, yeah let's get David. Yeah, we have no inheritance. And then people are beating on the walls like, yeah, it sounds good. Let's cut his head off and we'll, we'll move along. And so Joab headed back. Now Joab was over the whole army of Israel, 23, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites. This is just a quick uh, summary of David's cabinet. Adoram, or in other, it may be Adon Eram, was over the forced labor. This is something earlier in David's leadership was not there, but now he had forced labor. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahalud, was the recorder or secretary. Shiva was the scribe. Zadok and Abiathar were the priests. And Ira, the Jerite, was also a priest to David. A couple quick things and we'll be done. David's cap cabinet had changed. And if you want to cross-reference chapter 8, verses 15 through 18, there are some differences in David's cabinet. And the differences were some people had been replaced. But... It says in chapter 8 that David's kingdom was led with equity and righteousness. 
Could that be said of David's kingdom today? At this moment in the Bible? Probably not. They had forced labor now. That's not something that they had in the past, but they had gone to so much war that now they had people in some form of slavery. And you read your Bible and you think about David and you go, man, everybody turn to Hebrews 12. And you think, oh, David's kingdom is a wonderful reflection of the coming kingdom of God. Oh, not so much. Many times it was a poor reflection because human structures fail us. And sometimes we look around and all we can say is, your kingdom come or come Lord Jesus. God bless you. (laughs) Now, take a look at Hebrews 12, 22 through 29. And Shane, if you can hear my voice, come on up. Here's what we have. We are the church. And the gates of Hades will never prevail against us. And you, Hebrews 12, 22, have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus, Hebrews 12, 24, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. See to it, that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less shall we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. And this expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken, as a created things, in order that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Father, as we think about David's kingdom and we think about the truth of these narratives, which is... (laughs) Most of the time, not very pretty at all. The lessons that we can learn is about a kingdom that will not be shaken, a king that is the same yesterday, today, and forever, a king that can be counted on. And I go back to what we said at the beginning, what is sure in my life? How can I rest at night on the pillow in a world often shattered by human sin and Decisions that branch off of sin like pride and greed and war and murder and adultery and lying and cheating. And we look around the world, Lord, and we see people suffering as a result. But then, if we could just rise above all the chaos for a moment and the aftershocks that we sometimes experience in this world, we see a king who is reigning at the right hand of God the Father, a king who came and died for all the junk, all the wrongs that we have done, nailed the mistakes of David to the cross, the mistakes of Joab, Abishai. There at Gibeon, Joab would remember that Asahel, his brother, was killed. All the hurts and wounds of 
generations nailed to the cross where the great king, Jesus, came down. When you were on the cross, we know the earth shook, Lord, a sign of judgment. But we know that you were dying there for all the mistakes that we have made over the centuries. If I could articulate a prayer of asking for forgiveness, I would just say, Lord, we're so sorry for the many reverberations that have gone out because of our actions and the actions of others. But thank you so much that even with all of that, you had a plan to come into this world so that a kingdom that could be counted on would remain. And Lord, sometimes we put, we, we anchor our hope in things that are not going to last. But a kingdom's coming that's very physical. It's, it's a kingdom where we're going to enjoy the best of all you have. New heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. And until that time comes, Lord, help us to be so anchored to the true king that when things come our way and they shake us up and they're going to happen, we can shake it off, plant our feet upon the solid rock of Christ and know that we're in the best of hands. So if you're here this morning and maybe your life's been a bit rattled lately and, or maybe you look around and, and you don't even want to watch the news anymore, um, be of good cheer. Your king is, has overcome. Jesus, Jesus, he makes the earth tremble. So cry out to him if you need to come back to him today, if you've been a prodigal, if you have not met him as your Lord and Savior, ask him to save you. Say, Lord Jesus, I believe you died on that cross and rose from the dead for me. And I want to stabilize my life by anchoring it to you. And Lord, for this precious congregation who I know comes in here each week wanting to go deeper with you, may you bless them, may you keep them, may you strengthen them. In Jesus' holy name I pray. Amen.